Welcome to the IASA Podcast Network. I am Rich Voltz, Associate Director of the Illinois Association of School Administrators. Today our guest is Dr. David Moyer, Superintendent of Elmhurst Community Unit number 205. The topic of this podcast is Scaling Innovation in Your District, a Systems Approach. Good morning, Dr. Moyer. Please tell our listeners about yourself and your school district. Well, good morning, Rich. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I'm in my fourth year as the superintendent for the Elmhurst School District. It's my ninth year overall as a superintendent. And we are a Western suburban school district um, of about 8,500 students. We have um, an early childhood center, eight elementary schools, three middle schools, and one large comprehensive high school. So we have um, um, uh, our unit district, which is um, in DuPage County, somewhat unique, and that's, that's a little bit about us. Okay, the topic of this podcast, Scaling Innovation in Your District, a Systems Approach, in a nutshell, what does this title refer to? Well, basically, you know, innovation is kind of the, the buzzword. And what we're trying to do is develop a common organizational understanding of what we mean by that. And um, uh, so what we've done is, is established um, uh, a definition that we've uh, borrowed from the district management group of innovation, which is achievement of pattern-breaking performance improvement that can be scaled and sustained. And so we want to, like everything, if you say rigor or differentiation or formative assessment and you've got a hundred different meanings of the word, in a way it doesn't really do you any good. So one of the things was to have a a common organizational definition of what we mean. And then, um, you know, we also want people to understand that it's not some type of innate talent that, that only a few select people are born with. You know, we're taping this on Bob Dylan's birthday, so I'll use him as the example. Um, but he doesn't, um, you know, creativity is something that can be cultivated and it, and it, it can be, um, in, uh, in, I don't want to say instilled, but it can be sort of um, uh, encompassed in the way we uh, set up our classroom environments to help all of our students tap into their natural creativity and, that they have. And so we, we, we want people to feel that this is something that um, uh, is accessible. Uh, we, we view creativity as a key driver of innovation. So we, we try to use that as an emphasis in, in the way we approach things too, is, is tapping into that natural creativity that, that we all have. How can a leader develop this culture of innovation? Yes, it's 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 as tricky really as anything in leadership or as simple in some ways, but um, we actually wrote it into our definition of culture. So when we talk about our culture, we say that we um, are a highly collaborative, relationship-driven, innovative learning organization. So we try to kind of formalize the importance of it by, by putting it in our culture statement, but um, I, I'm fortunate to have good principles in this district, and I think a lot of everything starts with uh, trust. And so when we have good leadership to begin with, then you can start to move into um, uh, being innovative. It, a lot of it involves risk taking. Um, and, um, you know, that doesn't happen if there's not a high level of trust. I, I think sometimes teachers tend to be uh, err on the side of being perfectionists. And I think that, um 
you have to break through that a little bit and accept that that failure is okay. Um, but we we're a PLC district, and so we try to tie everything we do together and and relate our concepts so that things aren't separate and all over the place. And when you think about PLC concepts like moving to action and short cycle improvement goals, we try to get people to understand that when they're doing those things, they are actually innovating. Um, innovating isn't necessarily something, you know, incredibly unique and unattainable. It's just a willingness to um, uh, try new things and to try to experiment and, and figure out what um, actually works for what students under what circumstances. So we we try to, we realize that it's complex, but we also try to find ways to make it simple and accessible for people. Yeah, that kind of leads me to my next question. So how do you really define innovation in this educational context? Yeah, I don't know how um, other people would define it. I, I, I will certainly tell you how uh, what it means to us. And one thing it isn't for us is technology. I think you can fall into a trap where you think that if you're a technology-rich district, you're innovating, and the two aren't necessarily synonymous. So for us, uh, a lot of it is creativity. We, we've we um, plugged into the International Center for Leadership in Education, and um, that's the uh, Daggett organization. And so the rigor and relevance framework, We, if, if you look at Bloom's um, latest version of the taxonomy, creating the highest order of rigor. And so we thought that that would be a good framework for us. We thought that the rigor and relevance framework, you get to applying knowledge to real world situations and you get to creating and, and, and you start to combine those concepts and you get to rigor and you get to the highest level of, of um, uh, thinking, but you also get the curriculum that is relevant and meaningful. And when we do that, we think that incorporating the six C's of uh, creativity, critical thinking, communication, collaboration, character, and citizenship. We feel that if our graduates um, can um, have those qualities and be competent in those areas, that they'll be successful for life. And so for us, we think that that organizing framework works because we think that the six C's will support rigor and that will get us to more of a skills-based kind of approach and more of an interdisciplinary approach. So for us, what we're doing is we're, we're um, trying to focus our innovation efforts on interdisciplinary learning. And we think that the interdisciplinary learning gets to relevance. We think using the rigor and relevance framework in the six C's helps us get to creativity and rigor and meaningful curriculum. So so much of school and so much of traditional rigor is in content silos. And so in our district, what we're trying to do is find ways to break down content silos to actually have meaningful experiences that are interesting and engaging for students. You refer to common principles shared by successful organizations. So what are some of these common principles and how do they apply to education? Well, it's interesting. A lot of times people would say that, you know, well, it's just different in education or it's just different in the private sector. And when it comes to innovation, you know, a lot of the research, uh, we're using some work from um, the Tushman and O'Reilly uh, book, Lead and Disrupt. Um, and they have a concept called explore and exploit. And when you look at the businesses that are successful, you look at the concept of identity and how they define themselves. 
And a lot of the businesses that ultimately fail, um, it has to do with uh, how they view themselves and that makes them more or less able to innovate. So for example, the Ball Corporation um, was noted for, um, is kind of noted for the jars, but they, uh, their identity was as a container. They built containers. And so as when you go from crates, you evolve into jars, um, it's, they're still in the business of containers, but they're willing to innovate. And their innovation has gotten to the point where because of their mindset, they've actually developed products that NASA uses for um, uh, you know, rings on, on uh, engines and other parts for um, equipment and things where um, they were able to remain relevant because they weren't stuck in a singular mindset. Um, and so f- for schools, what that basically means is that um, a lot of times in change, people get freaked out because what's really happening is their identity is being challenged. So how do we take a look at what we're in the business of? And I think that's one of the first questions we ask ourselves, if we can figure out what we're in the business of. And that has has been changing and it's been changing rapidly. And so what these successful businesses do, and it works in education as well, only you have to find different ways to do it in your environment, is they explore and exploit simultaneously. So they capitalize on what they already do well, which is continuous improvement, but they also are willing to innovate. And what they have to do, though, is they have to keep innovation and continuous improvement separate because they don't play well together. Because the people of a continuous improvement mindset are always trying to do what they do a little bit better. And they don't ever want to innovate because the parts of anything that's different that doesn't incorporate into their existing mindset they dismiss and then they get stuck in their same system. So um, the idea is that um, you need to give people the freedom to explore and try things. And once you find out what works, then you scale it. And essentially it becomes the new norm. So just what is this continuous improvement in this educational context? Well, you know, we, there's a, um, uh, kind of a concept that, that we've plugged into, and again, some of this comes from our work with the center, but the difference between a uh, forward-focused and a future-focused organization. And a forward-focused really is a continuous improvement model. You take what you already do, um, and you try to refine it a little bit and do it a little bit better, and you incrementally get a little bit better. But what you're doing is you're perfecting the past. You're perfecting the 20th century school in that model. And so in a future focused model, the the difference is, is that you figure out where you want to be and you develop a path to get there. And then, you know, that is a way that you can start to do things that you never really imagined you could do before. Um, And, and that's kind of the way we're looking at it. So, you know, if you take a look at continuous improvement, if, if you're proud of and if AP is important to your community and you think that's an important part of your programming, you know, you keep capitalizing on that or a workshop model of instruction or the idea of flooding intervent- interventions. Um, but at one time, a lot of those things probably were innovations. Uh, flooding interventions might have been considered innovative at one time. Now it's standard practice. So you continue to perfect what you already do well and what's working and make it better. 
And so there you go with the continuous improvement. But you also have to um, find a way to support innovation in your district or you will not be able to meet the challenges. And, and you know, I think you kind of want to talk about it a little bit of the fact that um, uh, the future is going to look radically different than the education that we experienced in the world that we were being prepared for. And so it's, it's really not good enough just to do everything that we always did a little bit better. Yeah, that really brings me to my next question. The, the world is changing so fast. And as educators, how do we properly prepare students for this ever-changing world? Yeah, and I think that that goes back a little bit to what I talked about with, with um, the six C's and, and why we're looking at innovation, the way we're looking at interdisciplinary learning, why we chose to prioritize that is that you really have to stop looking at school as a content-based um, animal. It, we really have to get into the concept of skills. And so, for example, if, if you were to take a look at the um, top 20, uh, uh, job skills for 2022, you've got um, uh, an, an analytical thinking and innovation. That's the number one projected top 10 job skill. So why would we reorganize our, our, our thinking about what school needs to look like? You know, that's an example. Um, active learning um, and, lear and uh, uh, learning strategies, uh, creativity, originality, um, critical thinking and analysis, complex problem solving, all these different types of things that are on this list are not, you know, um, the date of, um, of the, uh, uh, you know, some type of historical event that you can look up on a phone. So one example, you know, that like the, the fastest growing field is data analytics. So the question is, is that math or English? So, you know, the, the joke is if you go up to your high school principal and say, do you have a data analytics department chair? I'm guessing most of them don't. So, um, so that's where we start thinking about the idea of a skills-based approach as opposed to a content-based approach. That's why we focus on the six C's, at least here in Elmhurst, is what we're trying to do. And that's why we think that we have to get to an interdisciplinary approach. Um, and, and so, you know, I don't know exactly um, uh, if, if anybody has one right answer. Uh, but I do know that it's um, uh, things like a, a one standardized test score, while important in some ways, is not going to do it. You know, uh, to, to have a, a complex um, graduate uh, or, a, or, excuse me, a comprehensively uh, prepared graduate that can go out into a world where they're going to have multiple different jobs, um, that the jobs that we think they may have don't necessarily uh, aren't currently um, in existence. That's where I think, again, I just think the, the simple answer is start to go toward a skills-based, things like design thinking types approaches, things like that, um, things that appeal to student interest, student empowerment, where they're um, uh, researching, problem solving. I think those are the types of things we have to, th have to be thinking about. So all of this information that you're telling us today really talks about how does a district stay tuned to innovation and curriculum changes uh, when uh, curriculum is so hard to change anyway. 
and teacher attitudes and beliefs and textbooks and so forth. So how, how do you stay tuned to all of that? Well, the best I could say is that um, I don't know that we can 100% predict exactly um, everything that needs to be taught because everything is changing so quickly. And that's that's where I think part of the mindset goes to a skills-based kind of thought process. But I think if you have standards and if you're aligned with the standards and minimize the importance of content, not that content isn't important in, in certain cases, obviously some content is very important, but if you don't make content to everything, if you focus more on standards, then I think you can take a look at learning experiences that students have that they will remember that will be lasting because they have helped self-generate some of the um, work. Another thing that's really critical, you know, we expanded, we used Fullen's work from deep learning and expanded the four C's to the six C's to include character and citizenship so that we could address the concept of life readiness because we're finding that there are so many students that have um, uh, anxiety-related, stress-related, mental health types of concerns that um, it's, it's impeding their ability to learn. And so the social-emotional piece has to be integrated into the curriculum as well. And that just doesn't work well if you're only focusing on content. So um, I, think that, I think that we're looking at a little bit more skills-based whole-child approach and we're looking at some student empowerment where, where they are um, architects of their own learning. And um, we're setting up learning experiences for them where obviously there are parameters and guides and expectations that, that teachers have. But students are really central to being able to um, help drive their own learning. And, um, and I think that that gives them some ownership and some... Um, self-efficacy that serves them well in the in when you start talking about the idea of life ready and postgraduate uh, success. How do we best prepare our teachers and administrators for all these changes? Well, in our model what we're doing is we're we're starting with um, we're starting with the interested. So we've got an, a second grade team at one of our elementary schools, an eighth grade team at one of our middle schools that are really starting to get into the interdisciplinary piece. And we've started to do some work at the high school as well. And once we figure out how to get through the things like how do you incorporate student growth in, how do you have flexible use of time to, to do this? Um, how do you, we're moving to a standards-based reporting system. How do you report on the standards? And do all those practical logistical things that, that people t tend to use as reasons why you can't do something. Once these people figure this out, then the key becomes the scaling piece. And we were pretty fortunate that we were invited uh, and accepted to participate in Harvard's Scaling for Impact um, uh, program. And we brought some administrators there and deepened our understanding of scaling. And the key is you have to start innovating. The reason you have to innovate and do continuous improvement at the same time is that if you don't, other people start passing you up. If you look at some of the work from uh, Clay Christensen and, and the idea of the S-curve, um, you want to start innovating while you're on the way up in one of your, your success areas, because as other people start to catch up, if you remain stagnant, you actually start to tail off. And once you tail off, it's difficult to turn it around. So 
when you start innovating when you're on the upside and you do what you're doing well, um, the continuous improvement side, then as the innovators are struggling to figure it out and maybe um, uh, going backwards a little bit to go forward, they start to come out of that. They start to figure it out. And then the organization can build on that momentum and scale it. And that's where then you, you can continue to um, continuously improve and innovate at the same time. So part of it is people need to understand that. Um, they need to understand the process. Um, and you need, to, you need to develop some, you know, scaling isn't luck. Like you have to have a disciplined approach. Actually, it sounds interesting, but you have to have a disciplined approach to how you, you deal with innovation. or Otherwise, you just have a bunch of good ideas bouncing around that don't go anywhere. So, you know, we're, we're trying to promote innovation and we're trying to learn how to scale. Um, we're trying to get teachers not to be bogged down by the trap of perfection. Um, and we're, we invest a lot in our leaders, like all of our, um, all of our uh, leadership team meetings are professional learning meetings. So we don't have a lot of business agenda driven types of meetings. And we do that because um, we think that uh, if you're going to systematize things, you have to have quality leadership. It can't just all be investing in teachers. You have to, you have to build a system. And, um, you know, so we do both simultaneously and, and you do have to, um, you do have to understand that the leaders have to be responsive to their teachers and they have to, um, they, they get frustrated sometimes too, because they have all the things that hit them at the building level. And that's why I think that the approach of starting with um, the, the innovation pilots, where you can keep the system afloat at the same time, and, and you, you suspend the rules a little bit for the innovators until you figure it out, that system of explore and exploit actually works. It just doesn't, it just doesn't um, make sense to people um, uh, initially because it, it, it sounds like it, it contradicts each other when actually it works together. So you mentioned earlier best practices and next best practices. What do you mean by these? Well, I kind of mean that... Um, uh, I, I go back to the forward focused versus future focused, and it really fits nicely with that. The best practices, we always talk about best practices in education. Um, and, and that's why the term next practices to me is kind of intriguing. Best practices is really, you know, it's kind of the, it's kind of taking the variability out of things, right? It's you're in an you're going into surgery and everybody has to uh, wash their hands properly to prevent infection. Like there are some things that you have to do and those are best practices and you do them. Um, but if that's all you do and you, and you keep getting better at that, you um, uh, are, are really perfecting the 20th century um, and perfecting the past. So, so the best practices are important in a way. We're certainly saying that you don't, you know, you don't stop teaching reading and you don't, you know, stop formatively assessing students. You do that and you get better at it. But the future focus piece is where the next practices come in. And that's where if you're willing to innovate, that's where you can um, uh, start to do things that you never thought your organization could do. And what happens in, in a um, best practice kind of model is that anything that doesn't fit your current mode of thinking, you eliminate it from consideration. And you only take things that fit your existing model and you work them in. And that, that's, that's kind of, um, 
that's kind of a, uh, a best practice kind of approach. What you need to do with next practice is you expand the system to incorporate some of the things that didn't fit your, your exist that, that don't fit your existing model. You expand the system to allow for them to enhance your system and there, and then, um, then you move into a next practice kind of, um, kind of, um, uh, process where, um, you're, you're open to the fact that the, that the system can look different instead of trying to do the square peg in the round hole kind of approach, you find a new, um, you find a new, you know, you find a new hole. So what closing comments, Dr. Moore, would you have on this topic for our other administrators who would be listening to this podcast? Well, it's my opinion that it's not optional. Um, I think that um, public schools are critical to the health of this country, and I think public schools have to maintain um, relevance. And I think that there are people that would just as soon um, do away with public schools. And um, so I struggle with that uh, because I believe that um, as, as the middle class continues to shrink, we're going to have difficulties with our tax base and we're going to have difficulty sustaining um, the uh, lifestyle and the society that, that we want for, for our citizens. So public schools to me are central to that. And I think that the only way that public schools are going to remain relevant is if they look to the future and they um, start thinking about those 2022 job skills and they start thinking about what graduates in the year 2037 have to look like. Um, and that may be a little bit of an uncomfortable conversation, but I just think that it's it's so critical that we have to figure out ways to be responsive um, in a proactive way, because the longer we play catch up, the, the longer this problem continues to get um, uh, worse. Um, then I think the, 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 the steeper the climb in terms of getting out, start innovating before you start to slide back. Right. And I think that, um, and I think that's what we're trying to do and we're not perfect at it yet, but I believe strongly that this is the right approach. And I think actually, um, I think that schools that haven't started to think about that yet really need to do that. Well, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Moyer, for participating in our IASA podcast network. And this topic has certainly given our school leaders something to think about as they prepare for the next school year. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dr. Bolt. I appreciate the opportunity. We're proud of what we're doing. We're working hard at it, and I'm happy to be able to share. And I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Thanks.